0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Sarah Vanderbeek. She's included in Photo, Poetics, and Anthology at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York. The exhibition, which was curated by Jennifer Blessing and runs through March 23rd, examines how ten artists, nine of them women, use conceptualism-derived ideas to explore studio-based photography. The exhibition's catalog was published by the museum. Vanderbeek has had solo exhibitions all over the world, including at the Whitney Museum of American Art, The Hammer... The Museum of Contemporary Art, Cleveland, Museum Boijmans Van Boynigen in Rotterdam, and the Baltimore Museum of Art. Just last year, later in 2016, Hatje Cantz will publish a monograph of Vanderbeek's work. If you're in New York, Vanderbeek and next week's Man Podcast guest, Lisa Oppenheim, will have a conversation at the museum with Guggenheim curators Susan Thompson and Blessing on the evening of January 27th. That's this coming Wednesday. We'll have a link to the calendar listing on the Guggenheim's website from ManPodcast.com. Next up a 2013 segment with Susan Phillips. The Hershorn Museum and Sculpture Garden recently acquired Phillips's 2014 part file score and the work goes on view this weekend. The clip'll we'll hear is from when I talked to Phillips in 2013 when her work was on view in MoMA's soundings exhibition. But first, Sarah Vanderbeek, after the break. Often referred to as America's jewel box, the Kimbell Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velasquez, Monet, Picasso and Matisse as well as international antiquities shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building designed by famed architect Renzo Piano opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit kimballart.org for more information. France's Sun King, Louis XIV, decorated his palaces with glittering tapestries, handwoven by renowned artists. This collection was the finest the world had ever seen, using gold and silver-wrapped thread to proclaim the king's magnificence. Woven gold, Tapestries of Louis XIV, on view at the Getty, features rare loans from the French state and evokes the brilliance of the Sun King's court. Visit in person or online to discover these larger-than-life tapestries and how they were made. A catalog of the same name brings the exhibition into your home. To learn more, visit getty.edu. And we're back. Sarah Vanderbeek, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi,
1: thank you so much.
0: Let's start by talking about something that you've done in your work for a long time, but even more acutely in the last four or five years, and that is the relationship between photography and sculpture. In kind of uh, the history of American photography, we're quite accustomed to seeing painters and photographers kind of volley back and forth between each other. And I think you and a few other artists seem to be consciously insisting on a on a third place for that pendulum to swing by engaging sculpture. Was that a strategy that you seized on quickly, right away, or did the interplay between photography and sculpture come to you a little more slowly?
1: That's a great question and something I've been thinking about a lot recently, particularly as I have been physically layering the images within the frame now, so addressing the photographic object in a sort of hybrid of sort of a sculptural and photographic processes and approach. But to kind of go back to how I began thinking about photography and sculpture in relationship to each other, I think it it comes some from my uh, education. I studied at Cooper Union, which really stresses a uh, a large, expansive approach to uh, art making. You don't choose a focus at the school, so I studied sculpture, and in particular casting, as well as photography, and it's been quite a while since I graduated. But I do feel like that grounding in that education, which comes out of sort of Bauhaus-inspired pedagogical models, encouraged me to think about this kind of the elasticity of photography, the expansiveness of the medium, and also the um, commonalities and connections between the two. So now to, to say that a little bit maybe more literally and logistically, a lot of the forms that I create to photograph in in my studio are cast forms. So I create a mold, and often I'm thinking about the positive and negative space in which to create this form. So I connect that casting of sort of, I, I carve out a negative space in which the plaster is poured to create a positive, and I really connect that to traditional modes of photography in meaning I still shoot with film negative and create a positive print. And so I've always seen this correlation between sculpture and photography in some kind of conceptual and and formal structures, but also much of my understanding of sculpture came through its photographic documentation. And I've always been interested in how that mediation has impacted my understanding of these three-dimensional forms. And uh, I enjoy very much how photography impacts our understanding of scale, of time, of place, and oftentimes it can be confusing or mysterious and I like that place in between something that is concrete and of the world and something that is of the imagination and has been sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, formalized or stylized or interpreted, um, mediated, via this other medium to create this interesting place in between.
0: Now, that's interesting because, you know, you mentioned being a Cooper Union, you graduated in 1998, and it was right about then or just after then that art museums began to exhibit the photo documentation of sculpture by people such as Man Ray as artworks in and of themselves, rather than just merely, you know, a magazine photograph of of an African mask or something.
1: And I very much look to practitioners like Man Ray or Brancusi who his photographs of his sculptures and his um, continual arrangement and rearrangement of objects in his studio is something that's in- incredibly interesting to me. And that particular time period in art, in in this modernist approach to a, a totality of uh, practice that in- incorporates not only just the work but the space in which you're working, the home in which you live, all of that folds into my approach to thinking about the the meeting of these two, sculpture and photography. Because I, I look a lot also at practitioners such as Sonia Delaunay or Annie Albers working in textile design, and that influences my thinking of the capture of images and then the printing and presentation of images too. But I actually Still, even though they were talking about textiles, I think of them as objects in in the same kind of field and realm as sculpture.
0: You know, you're not alone in that, in the sense that Sheila Hicks got, for example, to the same place very quickly.
1: And uh, I love her work, too, Sheila Hicks. Uh, so I think, I guess, all of that is to say that also coming from my family background, with my father Stan Vanderbeek being having been an experimental filmmaker, but also worked between Architectural projects, making, you know, various different objects, and my brother Johannes van der Beek working in sculpture and collage and the various dynamic forms uh, with uh, material and media. I, I sort of have a. A sense of just kind of like an expansive inclusive approach to bringing things into uh, my practice
0: so getting into some specific work and some specific shows because you often work in in a way where individual works are installed in kind of a total work kind of way um, I really enjoyed a small show of your work that was at the Baltimore Museum of Art over over the summer the summer of 2015 And we'll have some images of it on on of the install on on manpodcast.com. But it included both fragments of Baltimore, both pictures of fragments of Baltimore architecture and sculptures of white marble that could have been borrowed from that same same architecture. What was the relationship you were trying to establish between the pictures, often of white marble, and the sculptures, which were of white marble.
1: That show was particularly meaningful for me because I'm from Baltimore uh, originally, and I grew up going to the Baltimore Museum of Art. But I left Baltimore in 97 to come up here to go to Cooper Union, and I was returning to Baltimore in preparing for the project nearly 20 years after I had left it. And it was an incredibly interesting experience navigating the city that I knew quite well. I had gone to school downtown at the Baltimore School for the Arts in Mount Vernon, which is sort of in the historic center of the city. And so I was returning to a place that I knew, but a lot had changed in 20 years. There, were, there was also a lot that hasn't changed. Um, There's a lot of continuity. Many of the challenges that were present in Baltimore then are still there now and perhaps even magnified. And I... I wanted to sort of address this duality of experience of my navigating the city and that I was coming up also against sites that had so many layers of memory, uh, personal memory, collective memory, and also what has always really interested me about Baltimore are the stoops, the steps, the marble steps that are in front of many of the buildings that throughout the city. It's uh, It's a connection marble and this particular marble is something that connects many of the the diverse and divergent neighborhoods throughout the city. And what has interested me about that space is that it is this part civic, part domestic space in which it is both public and private uh, at the same time. And it's something that is kind of a lasting iconic image in a way of the city. So often when I begin a project in, in relationship to a site, I start going through various neighborhoods and kind of photographing uh, extensively research images that, that perhaps only are research and, and don't become final, and then often return, in return, if I can, multiple times to find subjects uh, that then do become final images. And so in one of these trips, I began to stand over some of the marble steps in front of one particular row house and photograph them and and then when i returned to the studio i I looked at this close-up view of this threshold and i I turned it from horizontal to vertical and i began to think of this motion of change in in connection to sort of the transformation over time of these materials and of these spaces throughout the city so that it oftentimes uh I'll begin with photographs and then respond with sculpture. and then other times it's the exact opposite where I'm beginning with creating sculptures and then creating photographs from those sculptures. So in in Baltimore it was it was both. the The central sculpture um, step being its title are
0: which ran across which ran the length of the gallery. So to get to photographs on one wall, for example, one had to almost literally traverse the step. That you had the, the the work called Steps that that was there in the middle.
1: Yes, and I um, like that. I had that plan, and I was hoping it was going to work because often you have you have mock-ups and models, and you don't know until you're in the space how it's going to work. But I was happy that it created this sort of threshold, which you had to kind of move around, traverse, and pass to get to. The images of, of a, you know, of an actual threshold that then I had turned and layered and sort of in the close-up view of it abstracted it. Uh, but the sculpture, the, the modules of the sculpture, the components of the sculpture were made uh, in relationship to a standard riser size. So they were uh, quite close in scale to what, what would be the components of an actual row house step or or a standard step that would be used even in something such as the steps that you approach the museum in. But that's a much grander scale. But I, I love that in Baltimore, this this marble that was originally harvested from Beaver Dam, it was a local quarry that then was it, uh, fully, uh, they had to close it because all of the marble, which was also used for the Washington Monument in D.C., was exhausted. But the that it was ubiquitous it was utilitarian but it's also it's a natural material that sort of speaks of the accretion of time within its materiality but it's also something that is connected to the history of art and and is used in neoclassical buildings and grand buildings and I and I liked that it had all these different very shifting meanings and qualities in it that I thought spoke to the overall sort of uh, history and present state of the city.
0: Just before your show opened, the museum reopened its original entrance, its original John Russell Pope entrance. So for the first time in, God, I don't know, probably 15 years, you could enter the museum by walking up marble steps in the kind of the traditional Beaux-Artsy, neoclassical way one thinks of as entering a museum. And then there was there was the reference to it in the show. I read a recent Q&A you did with Etienne Hatt in which... You explained that you were interested in, quote, considering how an image can reach a balance of the actual and the imagined, which is not quite talking about Trump l'oeil, but almost. Were you hoping that some of the pictures, such as Threshold or Threshold 2, in Baltimore would read, would have an almost Trump l'oeil reading in relationship to the sculptures that were in the show?
1: That's interesting. I didn't think as much... Trump boy, but I like that idea in thinking about the history of that in in American painting too. But I was thinking of uh, and that quote actually, thank thank God, it's more succinct than uh, what I was trying to speak to earlier in the meeting of sculpture and photography. Well, in thinking of the the actual and the imagined, I, I'm thinking of it in two different ways. In in that this is something that's recognizable, taken from the physical world. But through the processing of it, either in the composition, the the close-up view, the cropping, or in these more recent works, in the layering of them and in the printing and manipulation of the color, which is very uh, important to my printing process, taking it to something that is also speaking more of kind of like a memory image or something that is of the subconscious or of, of imaginary space and sort of meeting with this this thing that actually came from an original site. And I'm sorry that I'm still sort of wrestling with this idea because I'm, I'm very interested in it and I'm interested in how you can also present in an exhibition your process in a way that is transparent but also still has qualities of mystery to it and that you, like sort of it slowly unfolds as you spend more time with the image. My interest in showing the actual steps that sort of began my thinking for that exhibition was in in past works and in current installations, I like to include things that were the reference point, sort of the beginning point of that project, as a way for the viewer to enter and understand my process and also as both a connection and a disconnect between the the photographic and then the physical object there as well because the the photograph of the threshold was different than you know the the steps, the physical marble steps in front of it. But they had corollaries and connections, but then they also had, my hope was a kind of discordant disconnect that made you think about the way that we process memory, the way that we think about memory and photography and relationship to each other, the way that the past be, continues to have echoes and uh, reverberations within the present, and how even something that is within our present and within our physical scope can continue to transform and change and move between these realms of the physical and the imaginary space of the mind.
0: You mentioned giving viewers' ways to return to the work and find more in it the more they spend time with it as a goal. And that brings me to From the Means of Reproduction, which is a piece in the Guggenheim show, indeed a piece that they acquired. It's a 2007 picture. There is a short essay in the Photopoetics catalog, presumably by Jennifer Blessing, the curator, that explains each object in the picture from the means of reproduction. Um, And we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com, of course. And I think it would be almost impossible for someone encountering the work on a wall to be able to figure out what everything hanging from the mobile in your picture is, unless they're a lot smarter than me, and there certainly are those people. Are you consciously leaning on explanatory text there, or do you think or expect that viewers, upon a sustained viewing or repeated viewings, will kind of decipher each of what what each of the object's is as over time
1: I don't think about explanatory text when making the work but I do think about them more once the work enters the public space such as a museum and I've really appreciated working with Jennifer on the exhibition in that she was in incredibly considerate and invested in Gathering and gaining and conveying as much information as possible. But I do try to think of the work autonomous of any kind of explanatory text because it it's an image unto itself, and the same thing with the, the Baltimore exhibition, too. But that is also something that I that I feel like is a balance I am continually striving to meet, is a is sort of work that can exist independent of any understanding of really what it is and present something compelling and full of the many ideas and references that I'm gathering and translating and and processing to create the exhibitions and something that I hope will encourage a careful observation and repeated observations. But if anything, I hope that in, in that presentation of the work, the viewer thinks about how they observe the world and sort of maybe it encourages a a careful observation of their surroundings and the larger context of these pieces. So it's sort of a feedback loop between kind of, I definitely can go down into my sort of own labyrinth of connections and thoughts and all of that comes into the the work. What the viewer gets from that, I, I hope, is something that is in supportive and encouraging of considering the power of images and thinking carefully about the, the world and different sources that have inspired this work. But that also comes to the visual interest within the work to create kind of dynamic and new connections that perhaps I didn't even plan or intend in that composition. Um, and, and that was a long way to getting to, I appreciate everything that goes into these exhibitions, but I also think that they need to be left open for various different interpretations and takes. And I worked with a group of high school students in a master class connected to my exhibition at the Baltimore Museum of Art. And also at the when I had an exhibition at the Whitney Museum of American Art, and I always really love their takes on the exhibitions because they always bring these incre- incredible points of views and perspectives and things that I never considered. And it's it's often caused me to to reevaluate some of what I was trying to do with that work in a way that's been um, incredibly wonderful and uh, fruitful and beneficial. And I just wanted to get that in too because as I was. Speaking about Baltimore, the exhibition was really meaningful, but also my engagement with the the community there was incredibly significant. And the BMA supported and encouraged me doing this project with high school students, reflecting on the city at this kind of challenging moment in which I I took them around and photographed and we created a public exhibition at the Baltimore School for the Arts that ran for about six weeks of their work in conjunction with my work. And it. although this is a tangent, it speaks to what I'm trying to explain to you in my answer to your question about from the means of reproduction, that as an artist, and particularly one that is interested in sort of sight- I don't think it's site-specific, but works that engage with site. It's also very important to me to engage with the communities and the audiences and the and the viewers. So I'm always grappling with and trying to think of new and different ways in which to engage and create space for reaction and conversation and a dynamic between the audience and people attending the museum or those that maybe come at a different moment to see my show. And all of that, I think, brings up and, and pushes me to consider how I make my work and how also works are processed and, and viewed and understood now in, in this current moment, which is a very dynamic moment for art, but also a very interesting moment where so many things are shifting and, and changing in the way that people understand and appreciate and experience art.
0: So some of those shifts happen in your works themselves. You, you, as we've been discussing, exhibit both photographs and sculptures, and often those photographs are of sculptures um, or and sculptures you have made. And some of the times the objects that the sculptures are made up out of are photographs, such as in their, their photographs and from the means of reproduction. And there's this intense reflexivity within individual works and individual installations that's really fascinating. And I guess one of the artists I think of when I think of that kind of interplay is Michael Snow and I wonder if he was important to you.
1: I'm not familiar with all of Michael Snow's work but I really like his work and and in particular he's coming from a moment with sort of experimental and structuralist filmmaking that I appreciate and someone else that like is not exactly similar but someone else who I'm really interested in similar time period is Harry Smith. He, didn't, he did less of the self-reflexive installations, but his approach to sort of some of his early abstract films and then some of his later films is definitely informing my thinking towards these new compositions. Also in that time period, and someone that I was thinking a great deal about while working on the project in Baltimore was Yvonne Rayner, and, and in some ways also Simone Forti, because I, I feel like you can't discuss one without the other in thinking about sort of choreographing objects and images and the way that someone moves through the space in connection to their practices in, in, in dance in relationship to minimalism and minimalist other minimalist artists and objects.
0: My guest is Sarah Vanderbeek. We'll be right back after a break. Now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan, Soldier, Spectre, Shaman, The Figure in the Second World War. Featuring work in a wide variety of mediums by more than 30 international artists, including David Smith, Louise Bourgeois, and Henry Darger, this exhibition presents a range of artistic responses to World War II, in which the human body serves as subject and object, mirror and metaphor. Get more information and tickets at moma.org and plan your visit today the Pulitzer Arts Foundation presents Coda Digital Excavations in African Art, open now through March 19th. This exhibition features a powerful installation of nearly 50 Coda reliquary guardian figures produced in Central Africa between the 17th and 20th centuries to protect the bones of deceased ancestors. The exhibition expands upon a database and series of algorithms created to detect similarities among the sculptures, enhancing the understanding of their origins and functions. Visitors are invited to explore the hidden histories of these sculptures through an immersive digital experience created by rampant interactive St. Louis-based software designers and the Pulitzer's first game developers and residents. For more details on the CODA project, visit pulitzerarts.org. And now back to my conversation with Sarah Vanderbeek. Speaking of minimalism, you have for a number of years now exhibited sculptures that are roughly the size of Ann Truitt's uh, plenty sculptures. And in the Baltimore show, you probably got the closest you've come to making a really direct Ann Truitt reference. Has Truitt been important for a long time or did that kind of really blossom in Baltimore? I mean, there's a piece in the Hammer show from 2011 that is kind of not kind of kind of the height of a truit, kind of the uh, width of a truet and depth of a truet and it stands on the floor like a truet, but it's a totally different material and color and feel um, and then by the time we get to the Baltimore show, it seems like the reference is a little more direct.
1: Well, what was so incredible about exhibiting in that particular space was it. Was connected to a gallery in which one of Anne Truitt's earliest works was shown, which is part of the collection. And I would say that I admired and appreciated Anne Truitt's work for some time, and I really enjoy her writing. And what I I'm, I'm trying to think of sort of what would be the most the most significant aspect of her work. I enjoy that she translates these experiences and sights through color onto these incredibly simple, but very powerful and evocative forms. So Anne Truitt has definitely been someone that I have continually returned to, especially as I began making three-dimensional objects. And I was thinking about her a lot when making the objects for the exhibition at the Baltimore
0: Museum of Art. But maybe the most Truitt referential art object in that show is titled neoclassical. And I remember seeing it and then walking over and, you know, figuring out what the title was and kind of the title and the form and the material marble and the reference to Truett all kind of came together. And there in one moment was a 140 year history of place. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but it's a pretty cool thing.
1: That's (laughs) wonderful that you thought that because I was really hoping that. And the that place has such a powerful impact on myself and I think many of the people that live there. And I felt it so much in the way that Ann Truett spoke of her experiences. She, she was more in eastern Maryland and, and D.C., but she did. She taught at, you know, College Park, and she also had a long-standing relationship with the museum, the Baltimore Museum of Art. You know, they had a number of exhibitions. And what I love was reading about one, which of her with her arundel paintings and drawings was caused such a fury at the time. And there are these incredible, distilled, beautiful works that I was really confused as to why people would be so upset by them, because they're so uh, kind of... Just uh, beautiful and powerful and I think actually have a great deal of resonance with that place
0: They're more maximal than minimalism is supposed to be and because there's just five percent more to them than minimalism Visitors in the 1970s couldn't dismiss them as Oh that minimalist stuff, you know that that extra five percent forced an engagement with them. Yeah, they're really great <laughs> I'm a big Andrew fan <laughs>
1: Well, and I really love, and I know we need to move on from Andrew, but I really love also the accumulation, like the sort of synthesis and accumulation that is felt in her works, too, that I think about that a lot as well. Even as I'm sort of distilling and, and sort of removing and, and stripping out things, I'm also thinking about the accumulation and kind of the, the synthesis of object and image and the, the building up of the image or the installation as well. And I, I take that a lot from her too, kind of like bringing these different moments and places and things together into these singular forms is really fascinating.
0: Before you had the show at the Hammer in 2011, you did a residency at, at the Hammer Museum. And one of the places in Los Angeles you visited was what is now known as Schindler House in West Hollywood. Um, a house designed, of course, by, by R.M. Schindler. I, I guess maybe to start, why did you go there and what did you do there?
1: Well, I have to say here this is a moment to, for deep gratitude to The Hammer and Anne Elgood in particular. A curator a curator there who invited me to do the residency and the project at the hammer. And I continue to draw upon that experience. It was a very formative, significant experience. Uh, and Ali Sabotnik, also a curator there who helped with the residency was really incredible as well too, because I would come to them with ideas and they would help to make them possible. The Schindler house, uh, at, that time was already open to the public and I could go there on my own. But they also uh, helped me to get access to various prop houses and Western costumes where I photographed extensively as well. So my interest in going to these various sites throughout Los Angeles was, you know, I've also, I would say, I have an interest in architecture history and, and modernist architecture and the ideals and failures of modernism too and so you know it's an incredible example of architecture out there and often in many of my sort of research periods for these projects i did the same thing in detroit when i created a composition for detroit i I go to these sites that like have sort of very kind of significant architectural design and presence to get ideas in the way that i want to approach the space in the work So the Schindler House became um, the starting point for constructing a room within the room at the Hammer Museum.
0: Another specific piece about which I'm curious is a 2010 C-print called, and I can never pronounce this word right, (laughs) Caryatid? Am I I pronouncing that word even close to being... To, to correctly caryatid?
1: I think that's yeah I mean I never know I, I say karyatid but
0: you... yeah then I'll go karyatid that's easier to say certainly so let's go with that and it's a it's a it's a form that I'm guessing is a sculptural form that you made yes and it's on a wooden kind of whitewashed looking floor and um, and we'll have an image of this of course on manpodcast.com and between the viewer and the sculpture and the photograph are three mirrored panels lying on the floor and they reflect the the bottom portion of the sculpture why the mirrors
1: mirrors and mirroring are things i've used often in constructions for photographs in my approach to kind of layering and and doubling images sometimes within my photographs and then also in some installations in the hammer museum installation i had a piece which had mirrors in it that reflected each other kind of creating an infinite reflection and The mirror to me comes from the camera, that I work with an SLR camera, so a... a,
0: Often handheld, I think. Yes.
1: Uh, It's a medium format, and the handheld is important to me because uh, when I go around to various places photographing, I really like that I can move quite quickly, but also carefully, and I can still enlarge the image a fair bit from that medium format negative but within the SLR is the mirror, which allows me to make the composition. And so I've always connected mirrors with photographic capture. And with I, I've had them hanging in some of my earlier constructions in which I'm, while I'm photographing, I'm holding up an image that's reflecting in the mirror. And in the karyotid in particular, the mirror was meant to sort of reflect reflect and refract the central sculptural object extending it but also kind of creating like a space in which it sort of fell through the
0: floor a third space if you want yeah
1: and the caryatid comes from an ancient uh, it's an ancient architectural form it's a female figure that's used as an architectural support in Greece and then in Roman architecture and i've always been interested in it as a form in that it's both architectural and figurative And uh, Brancusi also created a sculpture called Caryatid. But so I think, you know, some of that staging, I think I was also thinking in in that particular space, which was uh, sort of in a downtown New York loft, I was thinking about him and his work in the, the group mobiles and um, moving and rearranging and staging and working with reflection but i was also thinking about that moment in the 70s that i referred to earlier with like artists working in these lofts and much of the documentation you see of that time and of these particular spaces having these kind of layers of life and activity within them and then you would have the artwork interspersed in amongst it. So I found once these amazing photographs that Hollis Frampton had taken of Carl Andre's sculpture, like in a loft somewhere. And I thought that was really interesting, these two artists working together to document his work. But that centered within the image is this installation of a sculpture, but then you see the sort of life surrounding it coming in around the edges of the object too. But the the light I, I I did a long exposure so that the light of the windows began to blast out the image so that again it was somewhere between being in an actual space and a semi abstracted imaginary space.
0: Yeah, it's all it, it, it all works in a pretty cool way. It's it's from it's a twenty ten piece and another piece from twenty ten is called Treme School Window. In in, in discussing uh, oh, I have to say that word again, karyatid, you were talking about kind of creating a third space. Within the picture that you know kind of an alternate space to get lost in in those mirrors Is that were you going after the same thing in Treme school window? Is that what that picture is about as well?
1: Yes, and and also Like that third space being sort of the opposite of the light reflected in the mirror and the form of being the black void in the, the window And
0: And in the middle of your picture, very middle of your picture.
1: Yeah, very centered. And sort of that black void was like a depth, but it was also sort of like a surface that like it almost it it did both it receded and sort of pushed forward in a way that I was interested in when I encountered the original. Window, so I wanted to convey that in the photograph. And that was photographed in the Tremaine neighborhood in New Orleans. And it was a similar thing to what I was speaking of with the Schindler House and also when I went to visit Saarinen's GM complex in Detroit. This was this modernist school that had fallen into disrepair because they had found that the open plan had not really worked for, you know, just it didn't work for the classes or the school. And so they had closed the school and it had been left abandoned sort of in the center of this uh, neighborhood. So it, it was also completely discordant with the sort of Victorian homes that surround it in New Orleans. So I was very intrigued by the structure and the kind of clash of these two architectures and by the, the mournful quality of this void as well. Like this was a city that was, this was five years after Katrina, but that was still dealing with the impact of that tremendous and, and terrible event. And so all of that gets folded into, for me, that black void at the center of the image.
0: It's a it's a great picture. It's another one of your works that reminds me of of a Michael Snow in this case, site from 1968, a piece at the Vancouver Art Gallery. Although I, I I must also confess, I this the current the Guggenheim show, Photopoetics. I see an awful lot of Michael Snow and a lot of artists in the show, so I may just really have Michael Snow on the brain. <laughs> and finally, I want to ask, I'd like to ask about the pieces you've made that are photographs of classical or ancient sculptural objects. In which you lay blue plexi over the picture is that mostly or substantially a reference to cyanotypes or is that not a reference you want or we're going after
1: Uh, very much a reference to cyanotypes I'm really interested in the the foundations uh, of the, the beginnings of photography and what's so interesting about it is that it's it doesn't have a very long History, like it's a in this very recent medium, so you can access and view very early images. I had the privilege recently. I did a um, a talk at UT Austin, and so I visited their incredible archive there, which I'm going to forget the name. But they had a, a oh,
0: with the Ransom Center. The Ransom
1: Center, yes. I visited the Ransom Cent Ransom Center, and I I was able to look at a collection of Henry Fox Talbot salt prints, and though not cyanotype they're very similar in that luminous sort of bluey purple color and what I found so interesting about his pieces seeing them in person was how they slowly rise to the surface the the qualities of the image and I was thinking about cyanotypes and the kind of long history of photographing sculpture back to its early foundations. There are many cyanotypes of sculptures, and in particular classical figures and forms. But I was also thinking about in some of the images in that same body of work in which I colorized them in in printing by removing certain color spectrums from the existing light that I found um, when photographing at the site was the original state of these ancient sculptures was polychromatic and thinking about how we understand them as these kind of quite pristine forms in which we project onto them and then that they actually were filled with color and in a way acted as these sort of amalgams of image and object and and also in some ways were a kind of communication of ideals of beauty and proportion that I think continues to inform us today, and and particularly in our uh, representation of women. And so I was kind of looking backward and then also looking forward and thinking about, in this use of color, sort of activating an original state and then also speaking to kind of contemporary images and colors and dynamics of representation now.
0: So when when I think of cyanotypes, for example, I first think of those famous early cyanotypes of, say, plants or plant forms. Is there a relationship between those earliest cyanotypes and plant forms and and the forms of uh, Roman or ancient sculptures of women that you were interested in making? And if not, just say no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps not, but, the, but I do think of cyanotypes like mapping and cyanotypes are really like I think really important and I drew upon them too for the from an exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Cleveland that because I there I had encountered these architecture plans which is diazotype but again similar to cyanotype and I just think that like there it there's something just incredibly sort of wonderful and powerful about cyanotypes maybe because it's a direct printing so maybe, if anything, the, the, the physical connection of this object having to lay, whether it's a negative or an actual object, onto the print and to make the impression and to be working with sunlight to form the image is something that I, I was interested in translating in placing the blue in front of the image. So there's something in the connection of the physical making of a cyanotype that I was also thinking about with the physical object in with those works
0: when i think of some of the work that's in the guggenheim show that is made up of so the the works are photographs and in the photographs we have maybe a mobile or a sculpture you've built and those those objects you're photographing might be pictures they might be actual physical objects and then the photograph is is what we see on a wall do you there are artists who kind of play around that on that same field, and I'm thinking of people like Getty Saboni and Carol Beauvais. Do you think of your work as being in a conversation with them?
1: That's a good question. I really admire Getty Saboni's work as well as Carol Beauvais. And I would not say as much uh, a, a, that I'm thinking as much about a uh, conversation with them as much as I appreciate their practices as I've been reflecting a lot on my relationship with Sarah Charlesworth. I guess I would say, if, if to think of
0: this whole show, in fact, yeah, yeah. like
1: if, if particularly with uh, poetics, and particularly that its timing is concurrent with the, the solo exhibition of Sarah's work at the new museum this summer. And there's been a number of books and articles coming out about her in which I've contributed to. So I've been thinking about Sarah a lot. And Sarah and I met several years ago when asked to do an interview of each other for North Drive Press. And since that moment, we became quite close and had many conversations about work and life and images and photographic capture and practice. And I was thinking a lot about uh, the careful reading and kind of slow and considerate approach to her work and the way that when you spend time with her work, it continues to—it's it's as, as generous as she was. It continues to unfold and uh, bring forth many different ideas. So I had the privilege of working with Sarah once on a uh, an exhibition I organized called The Human Face is a Monument, in which I worked very closely to help her realize this piece called Figure Drawings that was in the New Museum exhibition. And I was really excited to see it there again and think of our time working together on that but some of the other works in the exhibition I had never seen in person, and it was so exciting to see the Zero Plus One series while I was developing the work Crepuscule for photopoetics because I was really pushing for the image to just rest on the end edge of discernibility so that the object begins to kind of dissolve into the atmosphere in which it's resting. And she was striving for a similar thing with this series, and so even though, un- unfortunately, she's no longer alive, to be able to have a conversation about that with her, I was thinking about this dynamic and, and working, in, working in conversation with her and her work sort of posthumously, I guess.
0: And, and of course, this show would have been in the process of being organized just as she passed away.
1: Yes. So she's been very present for me recently.
0: And in fact, you mentioned Sarah Charlesworth, and there is a catalog of the show is dedicated to the memory of the life and work of of Sarah Charlesworth. We'll try to have an image of that, in fact, on manpodcast.com. Sarah Vanderbeek, thanks so much for talking with me.
1: Thank you. Um, I really appreciate your interest and your wonderful questions. And thank you for this opportunity.
0: The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Mark Rothko, a retrospective, featuring more than 60 paintings by this abstract expressionist pioneer. Houston is the only U.S. venue to present this phenomenal exhibition, which traces the development of Rothko's signature style. Now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org Rothko for more.
2: Hi, my name's Susan Phillips and I'll be showing Study for Strings in the Soundings exhibition at MoMA. (music) Study for Strings is an eight-channel sound installation that um, is taken its name from a composition by the Czech composer Pavel Haas. Uh, We wrote the Study for Strings Orchestra. And uh, what I've done is I've recorded a cello player and a viola player playing their parts of this composition and had each note recorded separately so that each tone comes from its own individual speaker. And um, so I first came across the composer Pavel Haas when I uh, read... um, W.G. Sebald's novel Austerlitz and then again, I came across it when I read Alex Ross's *The Rest Is Noise*. And uh, they mention this uh, tr- concentration camp uh, called Treisenstadt, and it's apparently where they sent all the the creative people. You know, like the artists, the writers, the musicians, the poets. The, many of them were sent to this this, this camp called Treblinka. Along with Pavel Haas, and um, Hitler decided that he wanted to make an example of this camp as a kind of model camp, and they made this film called, called um, *Treisenthal*, which features uh, the study of study for strings orchestra, and um, and yet you can actually see Pavel Haas take a bow in, in the film. And it, also, there's there's other things in the film, but this this features quite prominently in the film, and. Um, but once the film was shot, all of the musicians, or 90% of them, were sent to Auschwitz and, and killed, along with Pavel Haas. But the, the conductor, he miraculously survives. Um, the score is destroyed, but he survives and he's able to remember it. And he pieces it all back together again from his memory. And so that's why it survives today. So, what I've done is I've not worked with all of I've only worked with a viola player and a cello player to create a sense of the absence of the others, where they only play, play their part of the composition. So, for instance, the viola player will play F sharp and then he'll leave a long interval in the recording until the next F sharp. So, I've rec- I record all of the ambient sounds in the room in, uh, during these pauses. You might hear the, so you really get a sense of the. The physicality of the, of the musicians as they play their instruments, but also you might hear ca- Dimitri's breath or a creak of a chair in these moments where there's no there's they're not actually playing the instruments, so that each of the notes are separated out, and uh, so I'm basically deconstructing the composition and then reconstructing it again. And so that the emphasis is on the physicality of producing the sound rather than the music itself. And the main themes are of the work are separation, absence and loss. And I wanted to like evoke the distance and separation by fragmenting uh, all of these sounds by recording it in that way. It re- materializes separation. Uh... Mm-hmm. The work in MoMA, when you come into the room, you see the eight speakers installed on the wall. And I've used the speaker cones that are in, normally inside the speaker. And so they're sort of they're in a straight line that kind of creates a sense of a horizon when you come in. So that's what I, I liked about using these particular speakers as well. That they had this, um, and there were various um, sizes. So there was a the perspective a the sense of this kind of perspective and um so that's that was the sort of thinking about why I chose those speakers and why I chose to put them in a sort of line like that and uh, and then you've got this kind of distance as well between the listener and the speakers that there is a kind of long it's kind of a long room, and people are encouraged to sit down on one end and and the other you have have the this role of the eight uh speaker cones and the speaker cones themselves, they're they're very large ones and there are smaller ones and the larger ones are the the sound of the cello and the smaller ones are the sounds of the viola. Well, I like the way these songs have had a, a history, you know, and I sort of see them as almost like found objects where by singing them unaccompanied or placing them in a particular context almost changes the meaning of the song. Like for instance, when I sang a Radiohead song and had it, um, the recording play over the PA system of the supermarket, people were <laughs> people thought it was an old Scottish folk song, and I thought, no, it's Airbag, and I hadn't changed it in any way. The only I sang it exactly the same to the same um, tempo as the original, but obviously the the, the instrumentation without that it sounds very very different um, and it's also this female voice thing in the song so and i sing when i do, when i do sing uh, in my work i sing more like i'm singing to myself than i would if i were to sing to an audience and i think um i mean that's in a that's important in the recording that, um yeah you get a sense of of, of solitude and intimacy and uh and I think it's a very different thing when you when you listen to music in a in a, a concert or or if you're singing a song at a party, which I have known to do. It's <laughs> it's it's like you're performing to an audience, but when you're but when you hear my installations, my or my unaccompanied voice, my it's it's you hear that you're sort of taken away by the sound, but you're also grounded in the present moment because it is clearly an untrained voice, and it's an disembodied voice, so you sort of become I think very aware of your surroundings and who you're standing beside, and you become aware of the architecture and um, and you might see the place in a, it in a, in a new way, a, play, a way that you would never you might not, not normally notice. The architecture, or you know, so I think it does really sort of ground you in the present. Um, when when I make these kind of interventions in public space, But yeah, but I think working in a sort of context of a museum or gallery, it's a very different experience. Where the environment is much more con- it's more controlled, and people are have a tendency more to spend longer with the work and might even close their eyes, and and you know they're. They're not. It's like you're having a simultaneous experience with the work when it's in a public context, where you're engaged as much with your surroundings than you are with the work itself. But I think when it's in in this kind of sound um, soundproofed room, it's a much more intimate experience of the work. And um, so I'm really looking forward to to hearing uh, "Study for Strings" at, at MoMA. Well, I suppose when I come to, I'm asked to make a new, uh, I'm, I suppose when I'm commissioned to make a new work, I do the site visit and I think about, it usually always begins with the place, you know, I consider the architecture, the acoustics, the atmosphere, the history. And, uh, but not always, it, it all just depends on, on the, the place, you know. I think it changes the piece a lot by putting it into um, a gallery context. I think it becomes a whole other work. You know, you have this very close proximity to the speakers. And and I think, I mean, it was great to have it in a Castle. But when I first recorded it in the studio, I was really nervous about putting it outside because I thought you would lose quite a lot of the intimacy. And you did, but you also gained a lot from having it in in that context, you know. And you know, it's a train station, so you're battling the sounds of trains and other ambient noises. But um, but I did like that the audience had to walk to the end of the platform, and so there was a sense of separation again from from the others, you know. And uh, so. But like I say, when I first it was when I first made it in the studio, it was like the idea that I was going to put it out out into such a m- massive, wide open space. I wasn't sure how it was going to work, to be honest. And uh, so um, I was I was very relieved that, that it did, you know. But I think having it in in MoMA in in the gallery space, so as I say, there'll be people will probably spend more time or or feel like they can close their eyes or be more contemplative um, experience of the work or, or you know' some um, yeah or whatever the sound just conjures in your mind's eye rather than what surrounds you I think it's so it's going to be just a very different very different experience of the work mm-hmm. I did see people respond to the work because I did quite a lot of documentation of it and it was really interesting to see how people uh, responded and, um, and you know, even though they had to make this extra journey to work I mean, because it was probably quite difficult to find you know, it wasn't like completely mobbed or anything so there was uh, this feeling of being apart from everything, you know because out there at the end edge of the platform, it's even though it's a train station, it, at times it was could be eerily quiet, you know. So um, and it was nice to to see people actually really listen and 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 uh, and not and being quite respectful of the of the work and not uh, and hearing it through, you know. So that was that was that was really nice to see. But some people were. Uh, were very got quite emotional and um, found it very moving and even if they didn't know anything about what inspired the work, um, which actually surprised me because when I deconstructed the composition in the studio, I thought, oh, I'm really taking the music out of this and and in parts it's almost atonal and quite brutal and I didn't think it sounded beautiful. Um, I mean, there are parts that are, but. I, so I was quite surprised by the reaction of of the people because there was nothing to see on the platform. What, the, what just had the title, you know. So a lot of people didn't get the references, um, but um, but yeah, but they still managed, but still found it moving, you know. So I was quite surprised by that, to be honest. Yeah. Well, sunset song, the the song that you hear me sing is uh, a murder ballad.
3: I asked my love to take a walk Just a little ways with me And as we walked, then we would talk All about our wedding Island, say that you'll be mine In our home, we'll happy be Down beside, where the waters flow On the banks of the Ohio the knife. I took her life against his breast. As in, I led her down to my arms. He pressed the banks of sand. He cried, My love, I Don't you murder me. Where she would drive, I'm not prepared. I washed down say that you'll be mine in our home we'll happy be down beside where the waters flow on the bank Ohio Returning home I wandered home Between twelve and one Between twelve and one I cried, my God, what I did, I've done What I did, I've done I killed the girl I have killed the man I love you, see That I loved you, see Because she Darling, say that you'll be mine In our home we'll happy be Down beside where the waters flow On the banks
2: of the Ohio so after doing the research, it was it was really interesting that it came from a whole tradition of murder ballads and uh, that there were these things called murder ballads. And so I had this idea as well that I would maybe go out into the desert and leave a solar pan- panelled sound piece out there just to play continuously with the, with this, the rising and setting of the sun. and uh, But that idea developed to become this piece for the roof terrace of art piece institution and the sound played and faded with the setting of the sun and and i really liked how it sort of worked, interacted with the architecture and acoustic, it created this kind of acoustical illusion so you got the sense that the sound we did, weren't really sure where it was coming from it seemed to fall out of the sky or come from across from the opposite building because of how the, the, the sound bounced off the buildings and uh and it was interesting to watch people as looking up into the sky, where the sound, this disembodied voice, come from? And uh, and then and then as the sound, as the sun gradually set, the sound got fainter and fainter and fainter, and, um, until it was almost a whisper. I mean, yeah, I suppose it was just that when I was there at this the murder ballads; those were what really interested me, and this idea of working with the sun, you know, because it's such a Uh, And then you know it was the first time I'd been out in that part of the woods. I just thought desert, you know. But it's um, it's quite different actually from how I imagined it when I went out there. Um, And I would, but we never actually realised that aspect of the project. But I would, I would still really like to do it. I have to say, go out there and just leave it, leave the solar panels out in in the middle of the desert.
0: That's all for this week's show.